Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Thanks for the birthday greetings over and over. It's great. You know, my one claim to fame as far as my birthday is uh, December 15th, 1966. So that's 53 to just save you the struggle of doing the math. That was the day, the day that Walt Disney died. That is my single claim to fame in the world. Same day. Well, and another great uh, thing that happened today is our youngest daughter, Katie, came to class and they're going to lunch with us. So Katie, stand up and let everybody look at you and smile. (laughs) That's our baby. Well, and also I'd like to just give a word of thanks um, for the, the generous gift that you gave uh, at the, what was that thing called? Our Christmas dinner. Yeah, Christmas party. That was just very kind, very unexpected, and very gracious. Uh, and sort of awkward, because I'm not the only volunteer in this class. But uh, nevertheless, I really do appreciate your, your kindness and expression of your appreciation. Well, we're about halfway through our series in which we take a single message from each book of the Bible, and we're going to take a bit of a break from it for a little while, just a couple of months, and uh, look at a couple of other things. We're going to, in January, we'll do just a four-week series on prophecy, prophecy, looking particularly at future prophecy and what, uh, what God's plan is next in the world as well as on through eternity. So that, that'll be January. February, most of February, I'll be in Israel. And then in March, um, we'll pick up our series once again. But today, we're going to take a special message that relates to Christmas and to the wonderful life that God has given us and that God gives. So if you would, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. I love the movie where a guy named George finds himself, finds himself stuck, in his words, in a crummy little town working in a shabby little office at the broken down savings and loan, or building and loan, I guess is what he calls it. Years and years of sacrifice and responsibility have him stuck working at this savings and loan. And of course, what movie am I talking about? It's a Wonderful Life, right. George Bailey A financial crisis leaves George with nowhere to turn. He decides that a desperate act is his only only solution to his problem. And the reality is, as soon as his family and friends find out the crisis, they pitch in and they come up with the money and problem solved. But George actually had a much bigger problem than that. His real problem wasn't money. His real problem was perspective. And the movie gave him perspective by taking something potentially away from him and showing what life would be like if he had never lived, and then giving it back. And suddenly, the, the idea of going to prison or the idea of having to uh, owe, owe all this money mattered nothing because he realized that it's a wonderful life. He was given the gift of perspective, first of all, by being in his, in his words, crummy situation, and then taking out of that and realizing that it wasn't near what he thought it was, that there are blessings, even in the hard life that we live, there are blessings 
that go far beyond the difficulties. Well, the gift, in a word, was perspective. I remember when I was teaching um, my daughters to drive, I was one of those that actually taught our daughters to drive. We didn't send them to driving school. Daddy was the driving school. And so we'd get out on the road, and I mean, your prayer life just flourishes. (laughs) It's amazing. But one of the things, I still remember sitting there at the kitchen table, we had, uh, you know, conversations around the table about driving, and then we'd actually go out on the road. But when we sat at the kitchen table and we were going through the Texas Driver's Handbook, there is a diagram in the Texas Driver's Handbook, and I checked, it's still there, you can find it online, that is so interesting, the great perspective. When you think about the, the word perspective, it says that when you're sitting in a parked car, you have a 180-degree field of vision. So when you're, when you're still, you can see 180 degrees. Your peripheral vision allows that much of a perspective. But as soon as you accelerate to 20 miles per hour, that field of vision shrinks to 66%. And then at 40 miles per hour, it shrinks to 20%. And at 60 miles an hour, your field of vision is only as wide as the headlights. Now, I read that in the book, and I thought, nah. And then I got out on the road, and at 60 miles an hour, I remember looking, and, and I'm looking ahead, and I thought, you know what, it's pretty much just right ahead of me. That's all I can see. They were right. And it's not only true of driving, it's true of living. That the faster we go, the less perspective we have. It takes sitting still for an extended period of time for you to get a full field of vision. And if we never sit still, then we're never going to have that. If we are always just life in the fast lane, we're never going to have that. That is one of the gifts of perspective that the holidays give us. Everything closes on on, uh, uh, Christmas and New Year's. Even the malls aren't open on those days, which is amazing because they're always open. The gift of perspective is the gift of being forced, in a sense, to slow down. Yesterday, I went with my other daughter to the Dallas Symphony. She uh, took me there for my birthday, and we saw a wonderful Christmas concert. And in the concert, they had this wonderful baritone. I mean, just this large baritone man, just, just this deep, wonderful voice just filled the Meyerson with just beauty. And one of the things that he did is he quoted... I love the, the concert because it could have been performed at our church. I mean, there were a couple of, you know, secular, as it were, songs in there. But for the most part, it was about Christ at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. You walk in and it says, Merry Christmas, right there. Not Happy Holidays. It was Merry Christmas. It was, it was wonderful. But this baritone, he began by quoting an extended passage from Luke chapter 2. And in his deep, rich, baritone voice, he told the Christmas story from memory, word for word, as he quoted from Luke chapter 2. And then he sang that wonderful old spiritual, sweet little Jesus child, we didn't know who you was. Oh, and the rest of us were just melting. But after he sang that song, we, we experienced something, or I experienced something at the Dallas Symphony that I don't think I have ever experienced at least at the Meyerson. And that is when he was done, there was a full 
10 seconds of absolute silence. No clapping, nothing. Just silence for 10 seconds. That didn't sound like long. And that's not even 10 seconds. Imagine that. 2,000 people had just heard the book of Luke quoted and then have this wonderful man sing about Jesus and then we didn't recognize him. And then 10 seconds of absolute silence. And then the idiot that is the one who claps first and then everyone starts clapping. But it was, it was one of those moments It's like, wow, the spirit of God is right here. It was just electric. And I love it that this time of year, whether our world likes it or not, they have to deal with Jesus. Whether it's saying happy holidays or whether it's protesting a nativity scene, they have to deal with Christ. And there is, a, there is the gift of perspective. And that wonderful 10 seconds of silence, I just, I, at one point in that, I just started praying, God, save somebody. Just save somebody right now. Luke chapter 1 gives us the gift of perspective, and we unwrap this gift through reflection. These are familiar verses. For most of us, we could probably quote these, but let's read them, and let's look at it from a perspective that maybe we've never looked at it before. Verse 26, Luke 1, 26. Luke has long chapters. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end." Again, familiar verses, but think of it from the perspective of what we're told here, particularly here at the end, where we're told you will name him Jesus, and he will be the Son of the Most High, and he will sit on the throne of his father David, and he will have an eternal kingdom. So this is not just a special boy. This is the boy. This is the Messiah. This is messianic language, and Mary would have known this. We know that from the, uh, Luke chapter 2 when she goes into what we call her Magnificat, this wonderful song of praise, Mary knew her Bible. And Mary would have understood from uh, Gabriel that this is, a, this is speaking of the coming Messiah. So we've got two things here. We've got his name is Jesus and he is the Christ, which is why we call him Jesus Christ. Think about that simple name. It is loaded with meaning. We're just told here, you will name him Jesus. But what we just heard in the service, Matthew 1.18, you will name him Jesus, Joseph is told. Why? Because 
because you, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek translation or transliteration of the, the Hebrew Yeshua. Yeshua is what we call Joshua, but Yeshua, Jesus' name in Hebrew means the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. So he is named Jesus. He is named Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. And notice the details of even that. His name means the Lord saves. And he's named the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. So in other words, Jesus is God. He is the Lord. And not only is he the Lord, but Mary, you're about to give birth to this, this, uh, this person. So not only is he God, but he is about to become man. Not only is he God and man, but he is also, in this uh, passage we just read, he will be king. Not only is he king, but he will be the servant, the suffering servant, because he will save his people from their sins. He will die. So in the name Jesus Christ, we have hidden all the aspects of his character. He is God, he is man, he is king, he is servant. All wrapped up, implied in Jesus Christ. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he emphasized these two aspects of Jesus. He first of all said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the Lamb who dies, takes away the sin of the world. That's not the Messiah everybody wanted, but John, as a faithful Old Testament prophet, uh, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, uh, made it known. This is the Lamb of God who's going to die for sin. But then John's primary message that he loved was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we're talking about the king. So you've got these two aspects of who the Messiah would be, suffering servant and the reigning king. Everyone wanted the reigning king, and we just kind of brushed the suffering servant under the rug for whatever it meant. John struggled with that message as well. Well, let me turn a corner here, and then we'll wrap it all together. This is going to seem a bit of a forced fit, but believe me, it, it, it fits. Years ago, during the Clinton administration, at a national prayer breakfast, Mother Teresa gave the address. Remember the topic of her address? She spoke to 3,000 people, of course, including President Clinton and Hillary, Vice President Gore and his wife, as well as congressional leaders. Mother Teresa said that America was once known for its generosity, but it has now become selfish, and the greatest proof of that selfishness is abortion. This is, listen to her words, quote, one sentence, any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love but to use any violence to get what they want. After those words, most of the audience erupted in a standing ovation. But President Clinton and the vice president and his wife stared expressionless without applauding. President Clinton later was asked about that, and he said that Mother Teresa's remarks were beyond criticism because of the life of service that she has lived to others. They're also beyond criticism because they're true. 
Every January, you're probably aware that we have what we call the, the Sanctity of Life Sunday, where many churches hold up the sanctity of life and hold up the Scripture's perspective on it and give emphasis to the wonderful life that God has made beginning in the womb. And I looked at the statistics this morning. I think the, the latest statistics we have are even still, at best, a couple of years old. But since Roe v. Wade in um, 1973, there have been 50 million abortions. And today we have an average of more than 1,700 every day. Every day. It's not merely a political issue. It really isn't a political issue. We've made it one. It's the ultimate question, of course, is not the right to choose. The ultimate question is when does life begin? Because life, if life begins in the womb, then, then we've got a completely different issue. Listen to what David wrote. These are David's words. He said, You formed me, speaking to God, praying. You formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame, or literally my bones, were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's Psalm 139. Well, you're in Luke chapter 1. Look down at verse... uh, Where did we stop? We stopped right at verse 33. Let's continue. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. The scripture isn't intending necessarily to make a a, a doctrine out of this, but sometimes scripture teaches truth in the context of other emphasis. And what it's teaching us here by way of the unborn is that notice the scripture doesn't view the baby as a part of the mother, like a, you know, like a, an appendix or, or something, but as a separate life within the mother, even able to feel emotion and to jump for joy. 
It was said of John the Baptist, same chapter, but I think back in verse 15, that he says he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. So, you know, for those of us who love the Word of God, the, um, the Scripture is clear, and if the Scripture is clear, abortion is wrong. But, and hear me, it is equally wrong to stop the conversation right there. Because his name is Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Same book, look six chapters later at Luke chapter 7. And let's look at the heart of Christ. And it is a heart that we all need to see. Luke 7, down in verse 36. Jesus is invited to dinner. Verse 36 says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Picture the scene. Jesus is sitting in the posh house of this Pharisee, undoubtedly a pretty stiff environment. Everyone's pretty buttoned up here. And Jesus is invited, evidently, only so that the Pharisee can check him out. And this, in the middle of this quiet dinner, maybe there's a theological conversation or who knows what they were talking about, we're not told, in walks this woman, uninvited, unannounced, pushes her way over to Christ, and begins weeping. Immediately, she's recognized as the town sinner. Everyone knows. Uh, everyone knows that this, one, this woman, we're told, is a sinner, meaning an immoral woman. She has the reputation. Her past sins have followed her into the Pharisee's house. And the Pharisee says to himself, nothing said out loud yet. Everything's just quiet. We just observe the woman's actions. The Pharisee says to himself, um, not only is this woman a sinner, but now I'm calling Jesus into question because he obviously doesn't know who she is or he wouldn't be acting the way he is. He doubts Jesus' credibility. I think too often when a man or a woman is struggling from some past sin, we've talked about abortion, but it didn't have to be that. You can pick any sin that we as a church have decided to label as unpardonable. And a person comes to church, and if it's known that this is what they've dealt with in the past, you know, it's like walking in with a scarlet letter on your forehead. Everybody knows it. And unfortunately, it's so rare that a person is meted with grace as opposed to met like this woman in the house of the Pharisee condemned before a word is spoken. But notice what Jesus says, not to her, 
but to the Pharisee. Verse 40, and verse 40. And Jesus answered him. I like that. Answered. He answered his thoughts. Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. I love that word, you have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to, her, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Great question. Of course he does. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You didn't, but she did. You didn't, but she did. You didn't, but she did. Three times Jesus compares the actions of the one who has been forgiven much with the one who, in his perspective, has no need to be forgiven very much. His point is that the extent of our love for Christ basically reflects the extent of our forgiveness. of our recognition of our forgiveness. She no doubt knew she was a sinner because she had the whole community telling her constantly. She comes in and Jesus forgives her and her love is such that she is willing to enter a situation that would be very embarrassing, humiliating, but to express love to Jesus Christ because of what he's done in forgiving her. Simon, this Pharisee, on the other hand, is so self-righteous, he doesn't feel he needs much forgiveness. Therefore, he doesn't express much love. Look at verse 48. Finally, he speaks to the woman. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this because any forgiveness for any of the so-called unforgivable sins that we as a church often label people today, whether it's divorce, whether it's adultery, whether it's homosexuality or abortion, or fill, fill in the blank with whatever the, the big sin is that, that people feel like they're wearing like an albatross around their neck. All forgiveness begins by recognizing that there was another life taken on our behalf when God the Son died on the cross for our sins. All of your sin, all of my sin, was placed on God's Son. All of God's wrath for the very worst of your sins was placed on God's Son. And He took it all. And He died 
the death that should have been ours. And he rose again to show that our sins were paid for. And if you will but place your faith in Jesus, of course, you will have the forgiveness that this woman also enjoyed. Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not go with a terrible guilty conscience. Not go with with the shame of your past, but go in peace. Why? Because there's nothing attached to you anymore that is labeled as sin. The world may call it that, but I don't, Jesus says. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And if you say, well, you know what? I'm a Christian, and yet I, I've, I've done that. I, 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 I know that I'm forgiven, but I still am racked with guilt over the years of uh, I, just, I just can't forgive myself. You know, I think we all deal with that to some extent. There, there, but maybe we're just mincing terms, but there's a sense that is regret, and then there is a sense that is guilt. And if we can just filter our emotions through theology and to realize there's no guilt if you've placed your faith in Christ. It's all been placed on Christ. The regret that you may feel, that's different. That's different. Regret sometimes can be a healthy thing to remind us, oh, in the future, I need to make better decisions. But even still, if it is something that, if you've got something in your past that is nagging you, and time in the Word, time in prayer, talking with friends just doesn't help you get past it, then I really urge you, uh, we, the church here has uh, you know, a counselor on staff, and there are great Christian counselors. In fact, you can go to a counselor completely anonymous. If you go to Dallas Seminary's website, <clears throat> there's a, uh, a link there, find a counselor, and you plug in your zip code, and there's more counselors than you can shake a stick at, who graduated from Dallas Seminary, who will help you filter your struggle and help you think biblically about it so that you don't live the, the last of your days with that nagging feeling. Well, there's one more place I want to ask you to turn, and I've saved the best for last. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul doesn't talk about the Christmas story that much. We get some of it in Philippians, where it's called there in Philippians 2, the great kenosis or the great emptying of himself and becoming a man. But 1 Timothy 1 is another spot in which we're given just a single line that gives us a great bit of relief. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, uh, we'll start there. Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. In great humility, the Apostle Paul writes down his albatross. He writes down his scarlet letter. He writes down his big sin that if it weren't for the grace of God would nag him. 
and that is that he persecuted the church of God. He persecuted the truth. He dragged them off and had them imprisoned, and some of them ultimately were killed as a result of Paul. Paul says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was a violent aggressor. Paul says, I was a bad sinner prior to Christ. And then he says, but I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I love that because it's true of all of us. Even if we thought we knew what we were doing, even if, we, if it was wrong, we acted ignorantly because we didn't know the full implications of our choice. If we did, we never would have done it. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They knew it was wrong. They knew it was wrong, and yet they choose, chose to eat. But they didn't know the full implications of their choice, did they? That, that only unfolded after the fact. We acted ignorantly in unbelief. And Paul says that, that the grace of God did more than simply forgive him. He says in verse 12 that Christ strengthened him and put him into service. You see, if we as Christians have been forgiven, we've not just been forgiven of our past, we've been given a purpose. He has put us into service. He has given us a reason to keep living. Our reason for life is not just to be saved and then to, you know, just sort of watch football until the rapture. Our, our purpose is to be of service to God, to use the gifts that he's given in whatever capacity to serve him. I've been reading through Exodus in my annual reading through the Bible trek, and one thing that's really struck me this time through is um, how God gifted people to work tapestries and to work gold, you know, shaping gold and whatnot for the tabernacle. These are not spiritual gifts. These are natural gifts that we would not normally call service to God. And yet it says that God filled them with their spirit, with his spirit, in order to serve in this capacity. So spiritual gifts are great. We need them. But natural abilities also are God-given and can be used for God's service. So if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, uh, what are you good at naturally? How has God gifted you in another way? That is intended for his service. That is why you are still drawing a breath to serve Christ in some way. And it's like the woman at Simon's house, the Pharisee. Why do we do it? We do it because we love him. He has forgiven us much. He has forgiven us much. Paul says not only that he's been forgiven, but he goes on, and I love this, uh, verse 15. He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And here's the Christmas phrase. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Gabriel, or, or the angel, we don't know it's Gabriel, but Gabriel, an angel, told Joseph, uh, probably it was Gabriel, but we just aren't told, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Paul says the same thing here. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. One of the purposes of Jesus' birth was to die. How ironic. His purpose in being born was to die. 
and then to rise again to be our king forever. But notice also what Paul says at the end of verse 15, because this is where we can really relate to it. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, that's great, but look at this next part, among whom I am foremost of all. And notice that's present tense, not I was foremost of all, I am. So he refers to his past and he talks about, you know, how bad he was, but he's not referring to the past here, or not just the past, but also the present. I am foremost of all. When we think of the Apostle Paul, we don't think of him as being a big sinner, certainly not the foremost of all. But from Paul's perspective, he was. And you know what? That's why you feel that way, too. And that's why I feel that way. We feel like we are the worst hypocrites on the planet. And the, and the reason we feel that way is because we know ourselves better than anybody else. We know the thought that went through our mind. We know that sassy, sarcastic comeback that was really pretty funny, that we didn't say. But don't you wish you could sometimes? No, 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 you don't. We know the truth of who we are. We know the depth of our depravity more than anybody else except God. If we can uncover the manhole that is over our heart and look down a mile at the tar pit that's, that's there, we know it better than anybody else. And that's why we keep that manhole on there. So no one else can see who we really are. And we cover it up well. But God sees deeper than the mile. God sees 10 miles deep. God knows the truth that, thank God, he hides from us about how much of sinners we really are apart from the grace of God. But here's the wonderful thing. Notice when Paul says, I am foremost of all, and we all think that of ourselves, The perspective is not, oh, woe is me. The perspective is verse 16. Look at that. Yet for this reason, for what reason? Because I'm the foremost of all. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, the greater you understand your sin, the greater you understand God's grace. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, Paul wrote in Romans. And it's a wonderful truth that whenever God allows you to see more and more of who you really are apart from him, and you see flaws, and he uncovers more and more of your struggles, and, he, and, and instead of you feeling like, oh, gosh, I am the foremost of sinners, woe is me, and just spiral into some depression, The scripture tells us that instead of doing that, we come to God and go, God, you mean you saved me even from that? And it becomes an offering of praise rather than a means of depression. The greater you understand your sin, the greater you understand God's grace. Again, looking at that woman who anointed Christ, she loved much because she knew she had sinned much. And so in your life, with whatever it is you bring into into the class, with whatever it is you feel like you're contributing to the body of Christ and you feel like, I'm damaged goods, I, I really can't contribute much to the body of Christ or the kingdom of God or the work of God, uh, I'm too far gone. You're not. Paul held the coats of the people that stoned the first martyr. Paul dragged people off 
to be imprisoned and killed who were Christians. And Paul looks back with regret, but yet looks forward and transforms that into God's grace. So if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, there's no sin that you've committed that's beyond the grace of God. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, there's no sin that you've committed that's beyond the grace of God and beyond fellowship with him. I love the last verse there. In fact, I think it's this verse that Jonathan Edwards wrote, that wrote, read, Jonathan Edwards read, the old Puritan, that played a role in his conversion. Only Edwards could be converted by a verse like this, but I love it. It's a great conclusion. Paul writes, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great, great ending. Well, let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you that we can come to you during this season with more than the surface, that we can open the Word of God and see how it goes much deeper than merely the surface of the season. But it shows that our Lord Jesus was given that name because he will save his people from their sins. And we needed that. We needed saving. We all do. And Father, I pray for any who are here today that struggle with a memory, with a mistake, with a failure that just seems to keep dogging them, that you would grant them the grace of a new perspective. As Paul looked back and saw his life before Christ as uh, a life that, that branded him the foremost of sinners, and even his current life of knowing his depravity, that he was able to spin that on its head and to see that it doesn't represent his depravity as the end of the story and his sin as where it all stops, but rather it becomes a testimony of the great grace of God that went so deep as to save the worst of all. Lord, we each know our own hearts more than anyone else, both their joys and their sorrows. And you know them too. And you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to save our sins, to save us from our sins, and to give us a perspective that goes beyond merely forgiveness and reconciliation with you. But like Paul says, that you have strengthened us and you have put us into service. That you have a purpose for us that goes beyond simply being forgiven and waiting for the rapture but we can serve you and we can encourage others who desperately need to hear the message of grace. So as we think about moving forward into the next year and into the future that you've given before us, may it be a vision of service to others, not merely just coming to church and being ministered to, but of finding a way, Lord, how can I serve you? How can I use my gifts for your glory you have saved me by your grace, and I want to share that grace with others. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.